way, talking about unity, and kind of the reason for that is me and Joe, as we try to more and more put a point on what we wanted to bring to you guys, the one another's of Scripture, one of the hard things was me and Joe trying to decide how we're going to do that. We're going to go to different texts like Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, Ephesians chapter 4, go through those texts one by one, or do we take broad categories of different commands? And that's kind of what we settled on. And so over the next probably several weeks, maybe three months, we're going to be talking about the one another's of Scripture and how we ought to live with one another. And we've got that in three broad um, categories. First, unity. We are called and commanded toward unity with one another in the Scripture. Second, in our services to one another. What we practically do for one another in our grace, in our gifts, and in the commands of Scripture, and then in discipleship in general. Um, training one another up, admonishing one another, etc. And so today, I have the privilege of talking about unity. And we're going to talk today not so much about the command for unity, although that's implicit in what we're talking about, but the importance of unity in the Christian church. And why we think this is so vital is because unity in the Christian church is greatly disregarded today. Now, there might be a high view of Christian unity when it comes to the church universal, right? This is something that, I don't know, any Christian would say, well, we, we should not be united with other Christians. We should not think highly of other Christians. We know the church is to be one body together. But unity within local congregations is something that's really lacking in our thought process today, where we really don't even think it's necessary. I don't know how many times interpersonal problems in the church have risen up. One person getting angry with another over a sin or a slight or whatever it might be, and the first inclination of our heart is, well, I'll just, I'll just go somewhere else to worship. Now, I understand the difficulty of interpersonal problems in our relationships, but I want to convince you today that the Scripture puts such a high demand on unity through its commands, that's really not an option left to us. We disagree with a brother or sister just to leave fellowship and worship with other Christians. It's not what we're commanded to do. Rather, we're to strive after and seek after unity in our congregations. Now, I want to start by talking about the ground of Christian unity. The ground of Christian unity. And I think that where I'm going to go for this is John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is going to be somewhat of a key text as we examine unity over the next several weeks. But in John 17, I want us to notice that Jesus prays for three different broad categories of things in John 17. Um, can anybody name what a couple of those might be? What does Jesus pray for? In John 17, in his high priestly prayer. Sanctification. Sanctification of his people. It says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the power of the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. The, your word is truth. Jesus Christ prays for sanctification as one of the top three things he prays for in this prayer. What would be another broad thing that Jesus prays for? Preservation. 
of God's people, that God would keep them. You've given them to me. I've preached my word to them. And we pray, God, Jesus prays to the Father that he would preserve them and keep them in salvation. But there's a third thing that Jesus prays for, and that is unity. Unity. Um, I think I'm just going to read that last paragraph, verses 20 through 26. Christ says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. And notice this language and how shocking it is. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We have to ask the question, how united is the Father and the Son together? I mean, so much so that Jesus could say to Philip, if you see me, you've seen the Father. That they share a common essence and identity where we can say that there's one God, but three persons in that Godhead, right? Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are intimately connected. There is no disunity in them. And Jesus Christ's prayer here is that we would be one just as I and you, Father, are one. And notice... The second reason, so that the world would know and believe that you had sent me. As we begin to talk about the importance of unity in the local congregation, we have to realize that there's really high stakes at hand. That Jesus Christ prays for this is one of his top three things he prayed up for before he left this earth, and that it has massive implications for how the world views. Christians, uh, I'll continue to read. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that we may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you who have sent, uh, that you have sent me. I made note to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, we see the beginning of this text, the ground of Christian unity, and that Jesus Christ praying that we would be one just as the Father is one. And I know that we've hit on this before. But the reason why we are one together is because we are one in Jesus Christ. Now, we are one in Jesus Christ and that the Father first has elected us in Jesus Christ from the beginning of the world, right? So our unity is seen before the foundation of the world, before time began, that God gave Jesus Christ a group of people that he would save, sanctify, persevere, and unite together in one. We see this at the beginning of the high priestly prayer. Notice with me, um, in verse 2, it says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, all whom you have given him, that we are bound together in some sense because of our election before eternity, that in the, the predetermined plan of God, 
we were bound together in the mind of God to be saved together through Jesus Christ. But there's two other ways that we are united together as the ground of our unity. We are bound together in Jesus Christ himself as a person. So it's not just in God's plan before time began that we're bound together, but Christ himself binds us together first in a legal way. Right? So when we think about being bound together in Jesus Christ in a legal way, what texts might come to mind? What ideas, what doctrines might come to mind? Justification. Justification. That we are justified, but we're justified in Christ. Romans 4, I think verse 25, tells us that he was raised again from the dead for our justification. Right? When I say in a legal way we're bound together, is that when God looks at Jesus Christ in a legal kind of way, he sees us as being part of him. I think this is best summed up in the theological language that Jesus Christ is the second Adam, right? That we were in Adam, legally considered in that first fallen man, but now we are considered to be in Jesus Christ. We are considered to be part of him, one with him, part of his body, but also in an organic way. In an organic way. That not only are we considered to be part of Christ just in the mind of God by looking at us because of what Jesus has done, but that we are truly, uniquely bound together in him so that the life of Jesus Christ flows into his church. What texts come to mind when we think of that? That idea. What pictures does the New Testament paint of us being organically united to Jesus Christ? Think of John where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Yeah, that's right. That's right. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, that we are not only in the call of God before eternity, not only legally considered to be one with Christ, but organically, we see in John 15, 1, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, we're pictured here as branches coming off the main stalk and main vine of Jesus Christ, and our fruit, our sanctification, flows because we are organically, in some sense, united to Christ. What other pictures does the New Testament give of being united to Christ? Baptism. 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 Yeah, his death, burial, and resurrection is our death, burial, and resurrection. That's certainly true. Certainly true. We're talking about being the body of Christ. And he is the head, right? Nothing better portrays the idea of a head and body as being organically united together as that picture. Um, head and body of Jesus Christ being united together shows the organic unity that we have with one another. What other symbols do we have? Husband and wife in Ephesians. Husband and wife, right? And taken from the biblical idea that husband and wife are not just two people that have come together in a mutual contract to do good to one another, but that we are one flesh. 
with one another. So much that the Bible can say that nobody hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. We are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the branches united to the vine of Christ. And I'll just throw another one in there. We are the spiritual stones built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, growing together into a temple of the Lord. Now, this is important because, as we have tried to emphasize many times, we are not just one because we have chosen to enter into a, a voluntary association with one another. We are one truly, organically, and legally with Jesus Christ, which means we are truly one with one another. That oneness is going to be so displayed that in eternity, there is going to be no division among us. We are going to be perfectly of one mind, one heart, never to depart. And that ought to have some sort of outcome in this life. This spiritual truth is a reality. But what we're going to be looking at in the next several weeks is that we are in this life to strive for unity because there still exists sin in us. In eternity, there will be no sin. We will naturally be united forever. But here, today, we are to strive for unity. So, I want us to next look at the importance of unity. After we've seen the ground of unity, we see the importance of it. And the first thing that I want us to notice, I kind of skipped ahead in my notes, is John 17, that again, one out of three petitions that Jesus Christ chooses to pray before he leaves this earth is that we would be united together in one. And this isn't just an eschatological prayer, because it's for the purpose that the world will see us and know that Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. Know that Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. This is repeated, the same kind of idea in John chapter 13, the very well-known text. John 13, a new commandment in verse 34, I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so, we have two very similar things said by Jesus Christ here, don't we? One, that the unity of the Christian church will show that Jesus Christ was sent by God and that the world will know that we are his people if we love one another. So, question I have here today is what does Christian unity have to do with the command to love one another? Some obvious question. Can, can I back up just a sure. quick second ask? John 17 is praying for unity. Is it what is the horizontal unity interrelate with the vertical unity, I guess? That they may be one as we are one, but they may be in us. Yeah. You could sort of try to read it in such a way that it's only talking about a vertical there in Christ and Christ in the Father. But certainly there's a horizontal piece of that. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't seem to be explicitly drawn out by Christ. Yeah, yeah. He, he is praying that the Father would work and make us one. Right. But he's not giving commands. Is that kind of what you're saying? Commands well, for us. I guess what I'm asking is when he says one, does he mean one with Christ or does he mean one with each other? 
Well, I think one with each other. I, I, I believe one with each other is what he's, just as we are one, that they would be one. But doesn't he clarify that after that? That they would be another? Yeah. That they would be. So, John 17. Amendment, yeah. But... Um, and what I'm getting at is verse 21, I think, in particular, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may, be, may believe that you have sent me. So what I'm saying is I think there has to be more than a vertical dimension if I'm understanding what you're saying, right? Yeah, I agree. There has to be. Well, I think the ground of it is certainly because we're one in Christ and unity, horizontally. Brother I'm not sure I understand what you're asking. Uh, but it, if it comes to me, I'll, I'll try to get to that. So, what I want to impress upon us is the importance here, simply, that Christ, before he leaves earth, one of the three general basic things that he prays for is that we would be one. And what that should communicate to us, in some sense at least, is that Unity in the Christian church is very important to Jesus Christ, right? Very important to him. Secondly, I want us to just turn to a couple different of the letters of the New Testament. First, 1 Corinthians. Now, when we think about disunity and problem churches in the apostolic era, I think that the church of Corinth would be primary in our mind. Um, now, when we think of 1 Corinthians... What are some of the problems that face the first Corinthian or the Corinthian church in this epistle? Lack of discipline. Lack of discipline, the man with his father's wife. Yeah. Uh, so serious of a condition were they in that there was a man sleeping with his father's wife, and they not only refused to discipline him and sent him out of the church, but they rejoiced in it. Right? We see this in chapter 5. He says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that cannot be tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. They're arrogant. They're boasting that this man existed within the church without discipline. And Paul calls him to Now, what other huge issues were in the Corinthian church? Chaos in the service. Chaos in the service. It's in 1 Corinthians 14, that people were speaking um, out of turn, and Paul says that there must be order. You can, you can go through there. We, we have a disproportionate emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit rather than in loving one another. We have people suing one another, right? So Christians in the church... They're going out and having lawsuits against one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, the reason I bring this up is that the primary thing that Paul addresses first and foremost is the disunity among the Corinthian church. Out of all these major issues that are manifesting themselves in this local congregation, the first thing that the Apostle Paul addresses here is their lack of unity. Notice verse 10 of chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and in the same 
judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Notice verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that you may not say that you were baptized in my name. So, I think that 1 Corinthians really gives us a powerful piece of the importance of church unity because what the Apostle Paul, I think, is saying here is that all of these issues that are manifesting themselves in your local congregation, none of them can be effectively dealt with unless you first deal with the disunity that is within your own ranks. To deal with discipline of the lawsuits or the lack of order in their service, there must be unity first and primarily before any of these things can be dealt with. Now, I would ask you in your own particular experience, when you've seen disunity in churches, and especially where decisions need to be made, isn't unity typically the primary problem that underlies all these things? People might recognize that there's a problem, but things can never be fixed because there's an underlying disunity that affects the whole congregation. I think 1 Corinthians shows a massive, um, massively important text to show us the importance that comes from church unity. But also, I have us turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Paul, in the first three chapters, deals with the, the great doctrines of Christian, um, the Christian experience, being saved by Jesus Christ in chapter 1, through grace in chapter 2, that we are one with Christ at the end of chapter 2, even Jews and Gentiles. Um, but then, in chapter 4, he begins... The section of his letter that is most explicitly dealing with commanding Christians how to live with one another, right? And how to live the Christian life. And he starts his command by a command to unity. In verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice the reason for that unity. There is one body one, uh, one body, and one Spirit, just as you were called to that one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we have, I think, showing the great importance of unity that Paul starts his commands in the book of Ephesians with a call to unity. And then, lastly, I would take us to Philippians chapter 4 for the call to unity. Actually, before we get to Philippians 4, we'll go to Philippians chapter 1. And we see this is really a theme of the letter of the epistle to the Philippians. And we have it somewhat defined for us here. What is Christian unity? Is it that we have to be uniform in everything that we think, in everything that we do? I think verse 27 gives us a wonderful explanation of that. 
says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Christian unity is not necessarily uniformity in all kinds of opinions that we might have, but it's a decision in our minds that we're going to put first things first in the Christian church, right? That we're going to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul in chapter 2 further encourages them. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But chapter 4, I think, is the, the crowning jewel and one of the most wonderful expositions of how we see the Apostle Paul and how important he thought unity was. In verse 2, it says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and for the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I think we ought to consider this for a brief moment, that Paul thought that Christian unity was so important that he was willing, in a public letter that was going to be read before the church of Philippi, to call out two sisters in the Lord who were disagreeing with one another by name, and to tell them that they must agree in the Lord. I think we ought to think about that. I don't think that anybody would think that would be ever appropriate for somebody to do from the pulpit. To call out two people by name in the congregation and tell them to agree, but Paul feels that Christian unity is so important that he's willing to do that. He's willing to call them out and say, you must agree in the Lord. And I think that these four texts, John 17, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians 4, and Philippians 4, really highlight, we're going to take a, a summary of New Testament teaching, the importance of Christian unity in the local congregation. Any questions about that? Thoughts? Okay. So, I think the next question we have to ask is this a, re, uh, a goal that can be obtained in the Christian church? Um, I think we can think this is pie in the sky and it's not something that can actually happen. But I think that the book of Acts really shows us that Christian unity can be attained in the local church. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Notice in verse 42, they devoted themselves 
the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship of the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came among every soul, and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How do we see unity coming to real life in this text? The, the contrast with Corinthians, they were, even with the Lord's Supper and everything else, the fact that they weren't breaking bread together, but here, breaking together, coming together and breaking that bread together. Amen. Yes, they're breaking bread together. And I think that we should notice this as we consider the book of Acts, that this wasn't just recorded one day in the church's life. Rather, after a long period of time, Luke sits down to write this narrative, uh, perhaps 30 years or so, after these events took place, and Luke can write that what characterized the early church, not just a one-day experience when all these people were saved, is that they were devoted to one another, they had all things in common, and that they broke bread with glad and generous hearts together. If we are tempted to think that Christian unity, although it might be important, it's not attainable in this life, I think we should see from Acts chapter 2 that the early church experienced this kind of Christian unity together. But we see in Acts chapter 6 that the reality, even in the early church, was disrupted occasionally by the sins of the people and the congregation. And that's something normal as well. But I think in Acts chapter 6 we should see that so important was this unity that Peter did something very specific about it. Um, Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing a number of complaints by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So we notice that the great unity experienced by the early church in Acts chapter 2 had a momentary disruption because there was sin in the local church. The Hebrews had some sort of racist animosity in some way, shape, or form against these Greek-speaking Jews, and they refused to share with them in the elements and the money that was gathered from the church. They were now being distributed to equitably and fairly. But I want us to notice how important unity was in the Apostle Peter's mind. So important that he summoned uh, perhaps the largest congregational meeting that we can imagine, right? Congregational meetings in a church of 60 people can be pretty stressful. I can only imagine thousands of people gathered together to consider this very contentious issue that had uh, the ability to divide and rupture the early church. But Peter calls them, gathers them together, and sees it as so important that they call seven men out from this congregation to take care of this matter. Now, it's certainly true 
said, I'm not going to give up preaching the word of God to take care of this. But it's so important that we must do something about it. And so in the reality of the local church, we're going to have moments where the sinfulness of our own nature rises up. We have interpersonal problems with one another. But we must take care of it. We must try to establish unity once again. Um, and so... I think the book of Acts shows that there is a real, true unity that is possible. And so today, briefly, weekly, I hope that we would consider the ground of Christian unity is in Christ because we are elect in Him. He is our representative head, so we are legally united. We are organically united in Jesus Christ. That all of our gifts and graces flow from Him, and therefore we are one together. And then, the importance of Christian unity... John 17, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians 4, and Philippians 4. And finally, that I believe that the New Testament teaches that there is an attainable reality of Christian unity um, in the local church. Do we have any questions or thoughts? Well, let me just know if I yeah. the legal and organic side of just thinking of adoption. Like, yeah. When I'm a gavel, we legally adopted, but thinking of that, we are adopted into his family. And then that organic union of being part of brothers and sisters, but even to the point that Christ, the verse that sticks out, is not ashamed to call us brothers. Yeah, Despite yeah. those interpersonal problems or the differences or the sin and our lives and everything else, and what that really ultimately means. And as a family, you would strive to, you would just give up on your family, but you'd wrestle through that and work together towards it. Yeah. Amen. No, that's a good point. Amen. Anything else? And again, the main thing I want us to see is the importance that the New Testament places on this, because I don't think that we place the level of importance that the, that the New Testament typically places on the unity that we would have in the local church. And it's something so important that it's worth striving after, worth fighting for, um, and that we would be transformed to see it as important as the New Testament sees it. Anything else? I'm just thinking of the glimpses we get to see of this in the Old Testament, um, specifically in the Psalms that speak of Christ. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm thinking of Psalm 22. Yes. Um, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Amen. But it seems like this idea of congregational unity was there as well. Yeah. I'll, I'll turn us to one last text in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Now, this is a, a psalm of ascent. So when the people of God were going to Jerusalem, they would typically sing these particular psalms. And one of them was about the great unity that they had in their relationships. Notice Psalm 133. Very short three-verse psalm. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on his collar and his robes. Now, what, is, what does that mean? How does Christian unity have to do with the oil picture here? Running on the head of Aaron, down his beard, and onto his robes. That wasn't, I mean, it was ceremonially to set him apart yeah. and to anoint him for the duty that he had. Yeah, I. I think that what we have here, unity, is like the oil that's poured on the head of Aaron, but it doesn't stay on his head. It runs down his beard and onto his clothes. And really, I think we have here a picture of, of 
Christ. Um, the unity that we have flows from Jesus Christ. We have another picture. It is like the dew of Hermon, which is a mountain, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So, the dew falls on Mount Hermon and then it goes to the mountains of Zion. So, notice, for there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And I believe what the psalmist is saying here, that in Christian unity, in unity with one another, God has commanded a particular blessing. We've already seen some of that today. The blessing that the world would know that we are His. What other blessings might flow from Christian unity? Jesus' name.